Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 to 21. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant as as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You may be seated. Well, one of the things that marks our current sort of cultural moment is the celebrity scandal. We love, as a culture, a good celebrity scandal, don't we? We love it. You know, we go through the aisles of the grocery store, we see the front cover of, of People Magazine or US Weekly or whatever it is, right? And we love to just read about all the different scandals on those covers. All the time, it seems like we're hearing about someone who is, you know, maybe a businessman or a famous actor or actress getting into trouble for something that they've said or done. We've even begun to see pastors and church leaders hiding these serious, serious offenses, which we were just completely unaware of before the story or the scandal sort of broke. We love a good scandal. Well, one scandal story in particularly, uh, in particular, really stuck out with me this last couple of weeks. Jennifer Woodley uh, was the CEO of a chapter of the Make a Wish Foundation in the United States. Now, Make a Wish, if you don't know, it's a charity organization that seeks to do what they can to give uh, terminally ill kids an experience of something that they've always wanted to do before they, they pass away. And some of the things that they do for these kids, it's just like, it's wonderful. They've met presidents, they've gotten to be police officers for the day, just stuff that really like warms your heart. I was reading some of these stories a a few weeks ago and I was sitting at my desk in the study there just trying, you know, not to, to tear up because what this foundation does is just so, so amazing. I don't think there's a single person in the world who who wouldn't be moved by some of the stories that come out of what this charity does. Well, Jennifer Woodley, who was the the head of one of these Make-A-Wish Foundation offices, recently turned herself in 
for stealing $41,000 from the organization. $41,000 from kids. People's hard-earned money. You know, imagine if you gave to a charity. You had, you had worked hard to earn this money. You gave to a charity, and you donated it for these kids, and then someone just stole it from them. I mean, who steals money from sick kids, right? These types of stories, they make us mad, don't they? It makes us angry. We get mad at this type of scandal, not only because of the crime, but because it subverts our expectations. You see, we expect the, the boss, the head of the Make-A-Wish Foundation to be a, a good person. We expect them to, to care more about the kids than they do about money. So when they don't, it infuriates us. You know, it bothers us when somebody who claims to be a certain type of person doesn't act the way that that type of person is supposed to act. And I think that this is basically what Paul is challenging the Corinthian church with in our passage today. The Corinthian church was claiming to be this amazing Christian community. You know, they were claiming for themselves the, the name of Jesus and they were calling themselves Christians in the public eye. And, and Paul, he's affirmed this, they are Christians, but it's clear that they aren't acting like Christians. They're claiming the name Christian, but they're failing to look like Christians. And honestly, honestly, I feel this. I, I know how this must feel. I know what it feels like to, to not live up to what you preach. I know what it feels like to claim the name Christian and then fail in your daily life to look like one. And I bet you feel that too. I bet you feel that in your workplace or in your family or amongst your friends. I bet you feel this. Well, the good news is that in our text today, Paul deals with this reality. You see, today's text, it's sort of the, the, the crescendo moment where Paul is forcefully going to admonish this community for claiming the name Christian and then not living according to that. And his solution to this problem is humility, humility. So our big point this morning is the Christian life is one marked by humility. The Christian life is one marked by humility. And we're going to compare two things in our text to help us really see this. First, we're going to look at Corinthian arrogance. And second, we're going to look at Paul's humility. So Corinthian arrogance and Paul's humility. All right, let's jump into our text and look at our first point then, Corinthian arrogance. Let's read verse six through seven in our passage. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So Paul here, he says that they're puffed up. And that word 
puffed up in this passage. It's the same word actually used in verse 18 of our text, which says, some are arrogant. So the problem with this church is arrogance. The problem is their pride, and it's this pride that's been leading to all of this division and the strife that we've been seeing in this church over the last few weeks. Arrogance, you know, pride being puffed up with oneself. This is the problem in this church. These Corinthians, they're thinking too highly of themselves. They're prideful, and it's actually leading to division in their community. They're claiming the name Christian, but they're not acting like it. Now, this is, a, this is a big deal, especially for Paul, because it seems like this division that's going on is something that's starting to be seen, not just in the church, but outside the church as well. Look at the question that Paul puts to them in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? you know, Paul's basically saying to them here, everyone can see your cocky arrogance. Now, who sees anything different in you? You're worldly, you're divided, you're arrogant. Who sees anything different in you? Nobody. You know, everyone is seeing your division. Their witness to the world is now being affected by their arrogant pride. And this, this makes Paul mad. Mad enough to, to explode with these two rhetorical questions to them. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything they have is a gift. They've received it all. You know, their status, gift. Their wisdom, it's a gift. Their spiritual gifts that we've read about, gift. Everything is a gift. And if it's all a gift, then the implication is that they have no reason for their boasting and their arrogance. They did absolutely nothing to earn these things. They just are, by God's grace, a gift. The Corinthians are boasting at all of these things. They're arrogantly saying, oh, look at how great we are as a community. And Paul says, no, you're not. The thing you're boasting in, you know, that wisdom, that spiritual gift, that was a gift from God. He's trying here to shift their paradigm, to, to help them see that the arrogance that they have is misplaced. You see, they've placed the emphasis on themselves, and Paul is working to change the way they look at the world to put the emphasis back on God. And this fact that everything is a gift from God, it's not just true for the Corinthian church, but it's true for us this morning too. Everything we have in our lives, everything, everything we own, everything we are right now, everything we're ever going to be in the future, it's all a gift from God. And this is something that Scripture actually attests to all throughout Look with me at, at John 3.27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Or in James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. 
Everything in our lives, everything is a gift from God. You know, your, your kids, this is a gift from God. Your money, it's a gift from God. Your church, your, your health, your marriage, gifts from God. Even the very breath in your lungs right now, gift from God. Everything, everything is a gift from God. Now, I hear the objection to this. You know, I, I, I sense the pushback already, and I can see in the future the emails coming into my inbox already. And you're asking, well, what about my work then? What about hard work? What about working hard and, and, and making things happen for yourself? You know, the, the, the American dream kind of deal. What about our efforts? What about them? And I hear you here. I do. I hear you. But Paul, he's not talking here about work. He, he's talking here about entitlement. Paul is, is trying to shift the perspective of the Corinthians from one that thinks they, they deserve this stuff that they're actually entitled to this stuff, to one that recognizes these things are undeserved but are given to them anyways. Hard work has nothing to do with what, what's being talked about in this passage. It's what people think that they deserve that has everything to do with it. In the Gospel of Luke, um, Jesus tells a, a story, a parable, actually, of, of two men who, who go to the temple to, to pray. One of them, he goes up to the temple, and he's a religious leader, and he prays, God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the other guy, right, the, the, this tax collector that the other one pointed out, he doesn't even come close to the temple. He stands far off, doesn't even lift up his head to heaven. And he just beats his chest and he prays, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, one thinks that he's entitled to God's favor, he thinks he deserves it. And the other one, he knows that he does not deserve anything from God at all. And Jesus commends him. Because it's not about the work, it's about what you think you deserve. The religious leader, he, he thinks he deserves God's gifts. He thinks that his good work is going to save him. He thinks that all of these things that he does, they're going to justify him before God, that he's entitled to whatever God's going to give him. But the tax collector, he knows that he doesn't deserve anything from God, nothing at all. He knows that he's lost, he knows that he's a sinner, and he knows that unless God is merciful towards him, unless God is gracious towards him, then he is simply dead in his sin, so he just asks for mercy. Do you see the difference, Christ City? Do you see the difference? One comes to God with an arrogant and proud heart. The other comes 
with a humble and contrite heart. And when you have an arrogant and proud heart, guess what you're going to say about the people around you? God, thank you that I'm not like other men. You know, I'm pretty sure that every single uh, virtue signaling you see on social media can be summed up in that verse. God, thank you that I'm not like other men. And that kind of response, that kind of response to other people, that doesn't lead to a flourishing community. In fact, I think that that kind of heart response leads to the exact opposite of a flourishing community. I think it leads to what we see happening in Corinth. Division, strife, jealousy, jockeying for for power and status. Look, Christ City, it's as simple as this. When we think that we rightfully deserve what we have in our lives, when we think that we're entitled to whatever it is God has given us, we become arrogant. And when we're arrogant, we start to be jealous. And we start to be divided. And we start to have strife amongst us, amongst our community. Because we all start to say in our hearts at that point, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. When we think we rightfully deserve the talents that we have, when we think because of our giftedness and our, 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 our good sort of talents that we deserve our position in life, then when someone else comes along who who's just has these amazing gifts, we feel threatened by them. They actually become our, our competition. They become a threat to us. But when we see our talents as gifts from God, then we can glorify God for other people's gifts because you're not competing with them anymore. You're not threatened by them because you know that you don't deserve what you have anyways. When we think that we rightfully deserve our money, for instance, when we think everything in our bank account has been earned by us and is ours and is ours alone, then when someone else is struggling financially around you, you're going to think it's their fault. You won't have compassion on them. You won't be willing to give. You won't be generous because you think that you deserve your money. You think you got your money on your own. But when you see money as a gift from God, something that he has generously given to you as a gift to steward well, then of course you're going to give because it's not yours to keep anyways and you don't deserve it. When we think our faith is something that we earned, you know, when we think that we just made the right choice in life, that our belief is something that we've kind of figured out on our own with our own wits and our own intellectual skills, when we think it was our great sort of argumentative and deductive reasoning that, that led to our belief in Jesus, then those unbelievers out there, they're just losers, 
morally backward idiots who deserve whatever it is that they have coming to them because they should have known better. They should have just made the right choice. But when you see salvation as a gift from God, when faith is something that's stirred up in us by the Holy Spirit, something God did for us by dying on the cross in Jesus Christ, then the people around you, they aren't idiots. They're they're lost souls who don't know their right hand from, from their left. They're like people that are, are lost in the desert without a map. They don't know where they're going. And you don't get mad and upset at lost people for being lost. You show them the way. They need the gift of faith just as much as you were in need of it when you were lost. The Corinthian church is arrogant. They have failed to see everything that they have as a gift, and it's leading to division and strife in their community. They're claiming the name Christian, but in their arrogance, they are not living like Christians. So what should the Corinthians do instead? What should they do? Well, this leads right into our our second point, uh, Paul's humility. Let's read uh, verses 9 through 13 together. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul here juxtaposes the Corinthians' arrogance to himself. He basically says to them, look at me, look at me. And when we do look at Paul, we find something that's rather unique. You know, look at the language that Paul uses about himself in this verse. He says he's like a man sentenced to die, a spectacle to the whole world a fool, weak, dishonored. He goes hungry and thirsty. He's poorly dressed, battered, homeless. Says he works with his own hands, meaning basically that he's poor, insulted, persecuted, slandered. He's become the scum of the world, the refuse. Literally, in this context, it means the gunk that people scrape off their dishes into the trash bin. That's what Paul's life is like here. That's how people treat him. The Corinthians, they see themselves as these spiritually enlightened people who are sort of like an echelon above the rest. 
But Paul says, actually, Christianity, it looks a little bit more like this. It's not about gaining status or power or position, but it's about losing those things, humbling oneself. Now, I just want to be really, really clear about what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying that you need to suffer like this in order to be a Christian. That's not what he's saying. Paul is not against comfort. He is not against success. He's not even against wealth. He is not for gratuitous suffering. We don't see that in Scripture. This passage is descriptive of Paul's life, but it's not prescriptive for ours. This passage, it's descriptive for Paul's life, but it's not prescriptive for ours. It's not saying that we should try to be weak and to be persecuted and to be homeless and to be hungry. That's not what this is saying. Rather, Paul, he's pointing to himself as someone who is humbly following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, his Lord. And what's remarkable to me about this list that Paul gives us is that everything on this list comes from the life of Jesus. You see, Jesus, he was homeless. In some senses, it says in one of the Gospels that he had no place to lay his head. Jesus was considered a fool by the religious elites of his day. Jesus was slandered and he was arrested on false charges. He was reviled, you know, insulted, spit on, mocked as he was awaiting his, his sentencing. He was persecuted. They flogged him and they beat him. He was considered the scum of the world, the refuse of all things, when the crowd shouted, crucify him, crucify him. He was sentenced to death. Jesus became a spectacle to the world as he hung on the cross by nail-pierced hands and feet just heaving for breath. Jesus, the God-man, right? Fully God and fully man. The only person in history who could legitimately say, I am better than everyone else. Jesus, God in the flesh, wasn't arrogant. He didn't use his position and his authority to lord it over others and to be domineering. But being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And thanks be to God that he did this for us. Because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In Jesus humbling himself, we are saved. Saved from our sin. Saved from the wrath of God and we're made perfect in Christ. 
And Paul, in our passage, is simply being obedient to the call of Jesus Christ when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul, he's simply humbling himself as Jesus humbled himself, and he is urging this Corinthian church to humble themselves like he is humbling himself as Jesus humbled himself. He even says in our text, I urge you then, be imitators of me. He's urging them, don't be arrogant. Humble yourselves. Look at at my example. Look at Jesus' example. Humble yourselves. The Christian life is one marked by humility. It's one marked by recognizing that everything you have in your life is a gift from God, that you deserve nothing, and yet God has given you everything in Christ. That's what the Christian life is all about. So let me ask you today. Have you humbled yourself? Christian, do you recognize that everything you have is a gift? Is is your life marked by humility? Are you seeking to walk in the footsteps of Jesus? Counting yourself as less and becoming a servant of everyone around you? I'm gonna be honest with you, you know, this is a problem for me. I can be arrogant. I can be cocky. I'm a a brash young man at times. And if you don't believe me, you can ask Brett. He'll confirm this. It is true. I can be arrogant. And so if you're struggling with this, I get it. I do. I get it. If Paul's words this morning were convicting for you, and they challenged you like they, they challenged me over these last few weeks. Let me just remind you this morning. You have a great Savior in Jesus. His righteousness, it's his perfect record, it's been applied to you. You are beloved by the Lord. Go to him, repent for your sin, and know, know that he's forgiven you. If you're not a Christian here, let me just ask you, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of the constant, you know, power plays at your work and in your families and in your friends? Aren't you tired of the division that you see all around you in the world every single day? Whether it's this division on a a grand political scale, 
that you read about in the news or just division in your one-on-one relationships? Aren't you tired of all this talk about peace and love only to see the world get further and further divided? Aren't you tired of playing the comparison game? of keeping score in your life, of competing with everyone around you? Aren't you tired of the pride in your heart that you have to constantly be feeding because you know that you don't live up to the image that you put out to the world? If that's you, let me just tell you, Jesus is the answer. Look at this community around you. Look around you this morning. Look at all the different people here. There's old and young. There's rich and poor. There's sick and healthy. There's broken and mended. There are all types of different people here from all sorts of different backgrounds and all different walks of life. How can this be? How is this possible? How are we united together as a community despite all of our differences? Jesus. We're united around the person and work of Jesus Christ, trusting in his salvation for us, seeking to walk like he walked, constantly putting to death the pride and arrogance in our lives and humbly submitting to his will and following him. That is how we are united here. That's why you see all of these different people in this room worshiping God together. That's the power of the gospel in their lives. We aren't perfect as a community. We know that. We know that. You don't need to tell us. We know. Sometimes we're arrogant. Sometimes we're divided. But where we fail, we go to Jesus. We repent. We're reminded of his forgiveness towards us, and we are united together in Jesus Christ. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you too will be saved.